Uh, Evening, everyone. My name is Josh, and I'll be leading us through tonight's passage. Uh, It's from Job 3, uh, starting at verse 1. So I'll give you a chance to open up, or it's on the screen. So starting at verse 1. After this, Job began to speak and cursed the day he was born. He said, May the day I was born perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it, or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it, and a cloud settle over it. May what darkens the day terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away. May it not appear among the days of the year, or be listed in the calendar. Yes, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout be heard in it. Let those who curse days condemn it. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars grow dark. May it wait for daylight, but have none. May it not see the breaking of dawn, for that night did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide sorrow from my eyes. Why was a stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why didn't the knees receive me, and why were the breasts for me to nurse? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest with the kings and counsellors of the earth. Who, re- who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see daylight? There the wicked cease to make trouble, and there the weary find rest. The captives are completely at rest. They do not hear a taskmaster's voice. Both small and great are there, and the slave is set free from his master. Why is light given to one burdened with grief, and life to those who, whose existence is bitter, who wait for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I sigh when food is put before me, and my groans pour out like water, for the thing I feared has overtaken me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be calm. I have no rest, for turmoil has come. Well, good evening, church fam. It's good to see you all here. Um, Not the most uplifting of uh, passages, was it? And uh, it's interesting, as I look out on you... I know some of you reasonably well, some of you I don't know at all, some of you passing acquaintances, um, and I don't know your story. To be totally honest, I'm not even sure if I know my story as well as I could. God does. So one of my thoughts as we're just looking at this um, intriguing passage in Job 3 is um, I want you to know that if you're not feeling spiritually strong or resilient at the moment, I'm just wondering how you're already processing what was just read to us. Uh, One of my favourite Christian authors, Don Carson, he's written on just about everything I can think of. He wrote a book called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And in the uh, preface, he wrote of his own book, 
this is not the sort of book I would give to many people who are suffering inconsolable grief. And perhaps we could say the same thing about Job chapter 3. Um, is it what you need to hear tonight? Perhaps, perhaps not. Because wherever we are on that spectrum, we're going to need God's help, either for ourselves or for the people that we come in contact with. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help me to declare your word truthfully, responsibly and sensitively for everyone who's listening. And please help us process what God is really, Job is really saying with the same compassion that you have for Job. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to approach this by looking at the um, chapter in three sections, and I've given them these titles. They're not very um, clever. It's the curse, the questions, and I couldn't think of a better word. Um, at first I said the complaint, but it's not really a complaint, I don't think. It's just the conclusion. So what can we say so far? If you were here last week, things that we learned from Job chapters 1 and 2. 1. All suffering is under the boundaries of God's sovereignty. Now, even that statement, you know, you, you could spend a lot of very interesting conversations with someone about that, couldn't you? All suffering is under the boundaries of God's sovereignty. You see that so clearly in chapters 1 and 2 of Job. And two, all suffering is <clears throat> somehow connected to the sin-ridden world that we live in. Perhaps the expression that uh, best describes this is collateral damage. It's the harsh reality of living in a world where babies and children and the handicapped and the poor and the oppressed feel the effects of the sin of others. And then there are tsunamis, hurricanes, droughts and floods where people, along with the rest of creation, cry out, when's it going to stop, Lord? How long? And some have said that the... Um, problem of suffering is the biggest question that Christians need to answer if we're going to make a, a good case for Christianity. And Job goes some way towards helping that. But I would actually say that um, once you've given the case for Christianity, it'd be a really good time to ask the other person, what's your best answer? Because I think Christianity has got the best answer that makes sense of everything. And I'm not saying it's going to be the satisfactory answer. Because when you're feeling pain, is there any such thing as a satisfactory answer? Can you remember the last time you had a toothache and someone tried to explain, I bet they didn't, tried to explain to you why your tooth is aching? You don't want to know, do you? You just want it to stop. <laughs> well, three... We have Job's example of a man whose suffering had nothing to do with his own sin. In fact, we've seen that Job is a man who believes in and trusts God and God believes in 
and trusts Job. Now, God knows that Job is not perfect. It could be that Job's got troubles trying to work out how perfect God is. But God takes up the challenge that was issued by the accuser in chapter 1, Satan, and the challenge is, will Job curse God if God takes all of the supports away from Job? And in chapters 1 and 2, we find out that Job will not curse God. That's what the devil said that Job would do as soon as all the visible and invisible supports were taken away from him, he would surely curse God. But he was faithful. And we see the absolute example really of faithfulness, not in Job, but in Jesus. And especially at the cross, we see the suffering servant. He is the one who is total innocence, suffering, total injustice for us. But in Job chapters 1 and 2, it does show us that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. In fact, for Job, we know that it's because he is innocent, or in God's words, a man of complete integrity. From the CSB there, you look at it in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3, God says that about Job himself. And it's because of that that he becomes the target. God nearly set the whole thing up. Satan, have you seen my servant Job? How... He is a man of integrity and he has a proper fear of me. And the accuser says, well, why not? You're looking after him all the time. You've, you've hedged him in. You've got him surrounded. You're protecting him all the time. And then God reaffirms right at the end of the book of Job. We haven't got there yet, but this is a little bit of a giveaway. In chapter 42, verse 7, God reaffirms that Job is the one who speaks rightly and correctly compared or contrasted to his three friends who do not say the right things. <clears throat> but in chapter 3, this is where it gets a bit more confusing. Uh, the lines get blurred a little bit, I think. It's where the arguments get confusing. Do you remember last week Craig warned us, and I'm going to quote him here, quote, Job and his friends will be wrong for most of the book, unquote. So here we come to chapter 3. How can you assess and judge when whoever is saying something, if they're saying it's right or saying it's wrong? Um, it's complicated. And you know what complicates it more? The story becomes complicated because, as I look out here, you are complicated. You know, you're coming to this disturbing part of the Bible with all of your pains, your disappointments, your expectations, and all of your biases that you've collected over a lifetime. And this is where Don Carson, in that book that I mentioned before, he says this, it's a little long and you'll probably forget the first part of it, but you'll get the gist of it. 
He wrote, thinking through the theology of suffering and resolving in advance how you will respond, however praiseworthy the exercise, cannot completely prepare you for the shock of suffering itself. And then he gives this example. He says, it's like jumping into a bitterly cold lake. You can brace yourself for the experience all day, but when you actually jump in, the shock to your system will snatch your breath away. Uh, Di was actually mentioning a, a thought that came to her today when she heard that was, uh, I've, I've read a, a book by a guy called Wim Hof. I don't, yeah, some of you nodding your heads. The guy who jumps into really, really cold water and it's supposed to be really good for him and says it's really good for others. I, I presume he, he must have some sort of a reaction. He, his breath gets taken away from him as well. It's hard to prepare for something like that. Uh, it's a good thing, really, that as we were told last week, Job is not all about the question of suffering. It's about faith and it's about hope, which is really good news, although it seems like you have to scratch a bit deeper when you're looking at chapter 3. And this chapter of Job starts off with seeing how Job is being totally honest with God, even though he doesn't really get everything right. And we'll be looking at the first part of my three divisions there uh, in the curse, the questions and the conclusion. This is the curse. The curse um, in verse 1, it opens up a time of Job throwing out what he's feeling. After this, Job began to speak. He's been sitting with his friends for a week. They've been quiet. It's been the smartest time that they've ever had. And cursed the day that he was born. Now, that's an uncomfortable verse for someone who's supposed to be trusting in God. But it's better to tell yourself and tell God what's going on in your heart. God knows anyway, doesn't he? But saying it aloud just might help you see yourself more clearly. A bit of self-talk can be helpful. There's a lot of self-talk in the Psalms where um, you know, it uses the language, why are you feeling this, O oh my soul? That's self-talk, and then it gets into prayer. So before the prayer, you're actually talking to yourself. Ever thought about doing that? It could be a useful thing to do. But what happens here is we're seeing that with Job, suppressing your thoughts about Job is not the example of a man of complete integrity because that's what God has called Job. Job was saying the same thing verbally about himself that he really was thinking about himself and feeling about himself on the inside. There's the integrity of the man of complete integrity. And one thing that Job brings up quite frequently is that God knows him. And it's sort of a comfort, but it also creates a bit of a problem for Job as well because if, if God knows Job better than he knows himself, then how can he let Job go through what he's going through? Shouldn't he be bringing relief? But Job doesn't curse God. 
like his wife advised him to uh, to do uh, last week. <coughs> and God actually says to her, look, you're talking about like a foolish woman. I'm just going to take a, a slight step aside here and I want to talk about Job's wife for a moment, okay? Um, she gets a bad rap. Uh, she, she is one of the ones that uh, most people, when you're reading through Job, you're thinking, well, that's another part of the problem that Job has, his unsupportive wife. Um, I think it's useful to actually think through that when Job says this, he's saying it because it seems like it's actually out of character for her. He's saying, you're talking like a foolish woman, insert, you don't usually do it like that. And you've got to remember that as Job's wife, the children that Job lost that we looked at last week were also her children. And she's looking at Job going through intense pain and to the point of, if you died, maybe it would be better. Another aside, I was at a, um, um, a friend's father's hospital when he died and uh, just in the moments before he died, his wife leaned over to him and, he said, and said, said to him, you've been holding on long enough, you can go now. And she said it with tears, and she's a Christian, and her husband was a Christian, and then he died. I think we should have a bit more respect for uh, Job's wife than uh, sometimes you get on the first reading. Jumping back into Job 3. <clears throat> Watching and listening to someone in pain is hard. And if you think that Job went too far, perhaps you need to stop for a moment and think about the level of suffering that Job was actually in. And perhaps you think if he'd, he'd only held out a little longer before saying these things that weren't, didn't seem to be helping his friends process what was happening. And we may be tempted to quote 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Maybe some of you have learnt that as a memory verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, Job. But with the temptation, Job, God will also provide the way of escape, Job, that you may be able to endure it. Well, just looking at that verse that comes in the New Testament, this side of the cross, if you look carefully at the end of that promise, that's what Job did do. He did endure. He endured the temptation to curse God by not cursing God. But as he was doing it, he just wasn't doing it with a smile on his face and singing, it's a happy day. Um, our time together tonight, wasn't it wonderful? Uh, rejoice. Wouldn't it be inappropriate at the moment to say, okay, we're just taking a stop halfway through this talk here and now we're going to sing rejoice. It would seem inappropriate, wouldn't it? He endured it instead with sighs and tears. 
And if the book of Job was a play, in chapter 3, I think that the stage would be put into utter darkness and there'd be this really harsh white light shining in, spotlighted on Job. And he's not really talking to anyone else. He's not talking to his friends. He's not talking to God, although his friends are listening in and they're being horrified by what he's saying. And God is listening in and you're wondering, is God horrified by what Job is saying? Or is he crying alongside Job? We don't know yet, do we? We'll have to hold off and see what happens. We know God is listening. And the audience, that is us, we're listening to what's going on in Job's mind and it's totally unfiltered. Have you ever met someone who just says exactly what they think? Unfiltered? Now, when they're talking about other people, that can be really rude. But if they're talking about themselves, it can be a real eye-opener. And we have to remind ourselves that this is the man that God called a man of perfect integrity. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was another man who wished he'd never been born, and that was Jeremiah. And if you're taking notes, in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 14 to 18, you read that and you would it would be very easy to think that's been taken straight out of Job or that Job has taken his words straight out of Jeremiah. Some people actually think that Job might have borrowed it from Jeremiah or Jeremiah borrowed it from Job. Um, I think the point is that they both had a similar experience and they had a similar reaction. Job's language was as strong as it could be. Just going back to the very beginning of the Bible, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth and then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, God makes the announcement, let there be light. Go ahead to Job chapter 3 verse 4 and Job says, let there be darkness. What's happening there? It's as if Job is saying at that point, God, undo the day that I was born. I don't know if this is a real word. Uncreate me. Don't bring the creative touch on that part of the past. In, verb, uh, in verse 6, Job wishes that those days in the calendar had been left blank, that there be no record of this is the day that Job was born. But that's not how God works. He doesn't do away with the past. The past is the past and it will stay the past. When God deals with the past, he never literally obliterates it. The question about can he do it I think is immaterial. He doesn't do it. But he can bring his healing touch to our memories of the past. It might be in the form of forgiveness and it might be in the form of transformation. God does not, he's not in the business of uncreating. He's in the business of creating and recreating. We know that God chose not to respond to God by doing what Job had asked. God, uncreate me. And God said, no, not going to do that. I've got more plans for your life than that. 
Okay. Who here at school ever did some Shakespeare and thought, I'd never want to hear Shakespeare again? Okay. No. Okay. I've got a question for you. Okay. To be or not to be? That's the question, isn't it? To be or not to be? What's the context? Hamlet is in a situation where he, he just can't imagine the future. So he's saying to be, to exist or not to exist. Would it be better to kill myself or would it make the situation worse because he doesn't know what's beyond? Um, Shakespeare, for I don't know where he was spiritually, but I know he was a reader of the Bible, I reckon there's a good chance that um, he let uh, Hamlet speak some words that may have been influenced by Job in a slight way. Um, for Job, his mind goes back to the past. It goes back to, he doesn't remember it, but he knows it happened, of his birth and even further back to his conception. And he wishes he had never been. To have never been or to, have, or to be, that's the question. That he had never been born or ever even been conceived, Job at this point, he can't think about the future. He wants either of those two days back in history to be struck out of the calendar. May it not appear among the days of the year or be listed in the calendar, he says in verse 6. Job wrestles with his lack of relief. He plays with the idea of some end to his pain and he can't see too many options. In verse 8, he makes a rallying call to anyone who would join in this strange curse that he was never born. This is a weird one for a couple of reasons. Verse 8, let those who curse days condemn it. That's the first part. Let those who curse days. Who's into cursing days? That would be a sort of a weird sort of group of people to know, wouldn't it? But he says, if you're into that, I want you to come along and I want you to curse the day that I was born. Have some practice on me, please. And then the next verse, or putting uh, the next uh, section, putting them together, let those who curse days condemn it, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Now, we've come across Leviathan before, and isn't it a weird thing to stick right in the middle of this, this self-talk? That Job is, what, what's happening there? What does it mean for Job to call on anyone who will join him in making this curse to rouse or to awaken or to get the attention of Leviathan? I think if there is anything that represents unmaking, it's Leviathan. It's this creature, this semi-mythical creature and we're going to meet that creature again, and I've got to be so careful about not taking, saying too many things now because Craig is going to deal with it. I think it's Craig who's going to be dealing with it in Chapter 41. There's a whole chapter on Leviathan in Chapter 41, way, way down. Now, um, if you happen to have one of those physical Bibles where you can look at the bottom of the page or if you've got one of those fancy Bibles on your um, phones where if you press a little footnote thing, you might get some sort of a comment like, um, this is possibly a crocodile. I have great problems with that. 
I don't think it really fits into the situation we're talking about. Um, a lot of good, smart Christians have got different views on this. So what I want you to do is um, I want you to tuck this thought away and just see how it applies, how it goes with the vibe of chapter 3 and also for the rest of Job. I reckon that I go along with a commentator, his name is Christopher Ash, who says about this particular verse that Leviathan is the imagery adds up to chaotic supernatural terror. That's all. When you have this picture of Leviathan, it's chaotic supernatural terror. And if, if so, that means that Job has reached a point where he wants the monster of chaos to undo his very existence because God is not going to do it. I'll leave that one with you to think through. But you can say that the vibe so far is Job wishes he had never lived. He wants non-existence where there is no pain. No physical pain, no emotional pain, and certainly not the painful memories of his children who died before he died. How do you cure painful memories? How do you cure sadness? How do you cure grief? Um, I remember when, when I was nursing, we had some in-house training and there was a lady who came along who uh, talked about um, grief and bereavement counselling. And uh, she was going through this uh, book that was all the rage at the time called um, On Death and Dying by a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And uh, in that, uh, uh, she talked about five stages of grieving and bereavement and what people can go through. <clears throat> and as she was, uh, it was over a couple of weeks, during the time that she was actually presenting this course, uh, her father died. And the last time that we met, she said, you know, I've been teaching you all of this about how to help someone who's going through grieving and I knew all these things about the, the five stages of grieving and it didn't help me at all. Interesting, isn't it? Goes back to the uh, statement, um, it, you just, nothing can completely prepare us for the shock of suffering itself, no matter how godly you are. It's worthwhile remembering that Jesus wept at Lazarus's tomb. Well, that's the first part. That's the, um, the curse. And now the questions from verse 11. <sighs> wow. Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? That's the first of two questions. Uh, uh, of five questions, they're the first two questions, that look at the same theme, the same feeling or vibe from different angles, except for the last question, if you go down to verse 23. Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Uh, a life given to a man whose path is hidden. He doesn't know what the future holds. God is not showing him the future. And then, whom God has hedged in. Can you recall that expression from anywhere? 
It's from chapter 1. And it's in chapter 1, verse 10, where Satan, the accuser, accuses God of creating for Job the perfect life and that God has placed a hedge around Job in order to protect himself and his household and everything that he owns. That's how the the devil is actually using this idea of, God, of course he's not going to curse you. You've got him on the easy life. You've hedged him in. You're protecting him too much. You've got him wrapped up in cotton wool. Nothing will be able to stop him. And God says, how about if we take the cotton wool away? That would be a good test, wouldn't it? Is there a man who will worship and love and fear the Lord for no reason other than he wants that relationship with God? Well, that's the background for chapter 3, verse 23, where Job uses exactly the same language about hedging, but rather than use the term of hedging as being how God protects him, now hedging becomes another way, another image of God putting Job in a prison. A prison he can't escape. And a prison that no one can come in and give him relief. It's a prison where God has shut the door, turned the key, and thrown the key away and walked away. Here's the test. If Job can remain faithful to God while experiencing that, this is another example of the devil losing the bet. Is it right for me to talk about um, God and the devil having a bet? You know what I mean, don't you? There's something that's at stake here. Uh, C.S. Lewis, again, he wrote a, um, a, a short uh, book called uh, Screwtape Letters. And it's a series of letters, if you uh, have a, not had a chance to read it, read it, um, set somewhere back around the time of World War II. Um, and it's a series of letters from a senior demon or a senior devil whose name is Screwtape. And he's writing letters of, rec- of ideas about how to deal with human beings to a, a, um, a lesser demon, a lesser, smaller, um, uh, a, um, a, a junior uh, <coughs> devil whose name is Wormwood. And either the idea is how to tempt people, if they're not Christians, to not turn to Jesus and so that they'll end up in hell, or if they are Christians, your job is to make sure that you wreck up their ministry, wreck up their opportunities, uh, wreck up their, um, their witness. So what I'm saying next here, i am just got to realise this is coming from hell. It's, it's coming from... Um, a senior devil saying to a junior devil this this important idea as far as he's concerned. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, that is God's will, looks around the universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still 
obeys. That's when hell trembles. Is Job obedient? Does the devil lose again? Well, you have to see this in the light of God's assessment of Job at the end of the book in chapter 4, verse 42, verse 7, where Job said what was right contrasted with his three friends. I saw some laughter at the back. I said Job, didn't I? Yeah, I watched too much American stuff. I watched too much American stuff. Again, it doesn't mean that Job was perfect. Job spends a lot of time on Stupid Mountain. If you're not too sure what I'm talking about and you weren't here last week, look at it online. One of the things Job's going to need to do is to revisit the conclusion that he makes in the last part of chapter 3 in verses 24 to 26. But just before that, I'm going to do a very quick sweep of a peek into the rest of Job where we get a fuller picture of some of the physical suffering, at least, that Job was going through, just to get a sort of, a, I don't know, a feel for it. Here's some of them. It's not, it's not a, a total list. Uh, constant itchiness, chapter 2, verse 7. Sleeplessness, 7, verse 4. Weeping sores, 7, verse 5. Nightmares, 7, verse 14. Depression, 16, verse 6. Uh, putrid breath, maybe that's what leads to isolation, chapter 19, verse 17, lack of appetite, 19, verse 20, and fever, 30, verse 30. And that's only a sampling. I think that would make anybody testy, don't you think? It seems to me that Job is actually angry with God. And this anger is also, as you're looking at this last part of uh, chapter 3, it's mixed with a fear, a trepidation. Uh, You'd have to actually do backflips with Bible language in Job to actually say the opposite, that, oh, no, uh, Job was really cool and he wasn't angry, he was very calm. I don't think that's what's been described here at 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 all. Job is being hedged in by God in the bad sense Job thinks. He can't imagine. <clears throat> he can't imagine the trillions of bits of relevant information that Job is not aware of, that God is aware of, that he's bringing together for God's glory and ultimately for Job's good. And Job will not be aware of it, really, even by the end of the book. Although there are some compensations at the end of the book. But he doesn't get his original children back. He has more children, but he doesn't get his original. How do you you make up for that? Ever thought about the questions you want to ask in heaven? The questions you want to ask God? Why did this happen? Why did you do that? Well, it could be a moot point because uh, by then, do you think you might have a different way of approaching your existence, your life, that the questions that you've got now will actually not be the questions you'll be asking in heaven? I think that's a distinct possibility. Brings up an interesting issue though, doesn't it? If it's right, that is, this is expressing his anger at God, Is it right to be angry with God? 
think about your answer for a moment. And I'm going to nail my colours to the mast and say no. If you read the Bible, when has anyone ever had a good reason to be angry with God? A good reason, if they actually knew all of the, the facts, all of the data. Second question, is it right to admit you're angry with God? The answer, I think, comes through clear is yes. Admit it. Talk out to God exactly what you're feeling. Uh, does everyone get angry with God? That's, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not everyone. Some people have told me that they never do, and I guess I have to believe them. I'm going to get answers from both sides uh, of that question straight after uh, this talk, I think. But I do know that we're all sinners and that there will always be plenty of things that we can repent from and maybe ungodly anger is not one of your prominent sins. It might be. The point is that we all have to take a hike off stupid mountain at some time. We might have to do it frequently. So what is Job fearful about that he brings up here for in verse 25? For the thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. Well, what has happened? If you go back to the beginning of Job in chapter 1, verse 5, there's one of his fears that are mentioned, one of his anxieties, and I think it's a sort of a godly anxiety, that Job is giving sacrifices for his sons in case they have sinned, quote, having cursed God in their hearts, unquote. That was an anxiety. That, that's a parental anxiety. That's a Christian parental anxiety. And this was Job's regular practice. But that can't be it because they're gone. They're dead. So what's the thing, verse 25, that he's fearing? Could it be that it is there is now no order in his life? His life is not making sense. Life was so tranquil before all of this happened that we read about in uh, chapters 1 and 2 and going into chapter 3. Uh, at the very end of chapter 3, uh, let's see, if you've got the CSB, the last word is come, for turmoil has come. If you were to look at it in a Hebrew Bible... The last word in chapter 3 would be the word turmoil because by putting it at the end of the sentence, there is an emphasis. It's the, in the CSB, it's translated turmoil. In the ESV, it's translated trouble. And perhaps both of them actually miss the point of what Job is dreading. Uh, the same word is used back in verse 17. It's got a range of meaning like nearly all words do. <clears throat> it can include agitation like water being agitated or trembling, a person uh, trembling, or quaking, the earth can be quaking, raging, 
emotional rage, or it could be chaos. So if it is that turmoil has come, emphasised, and chaos has come, emphasised, what he fears could be that if God, who is sort of controlling everything, if God is truly chaotic, certainly it would be better if he had never been born. Job had reached a crisis point. And will his friends help? You'll find that out next week. Will he have to wait until God intervenes himself? You'll have to wait until the very end of our series. And what does Job do in the meantime? As a matter of fact, what do we do in the meantime? Uh, we can often talk about the chaotic life. Anyone had a chaotic uh, week last week? If so, what do you mean by that? Are, are you putting in the same category as Job there? You know, when we talk about the chaotic life, it's when the cat's on the table and the kids have the flu, uh, the emails are piling up and the assignments are due. Could nearly make a song out of that. Um, or it could be worse. You see, the expected response these days to how's it going is busy. And in the busyness, there's this suggestion that maybe things are getting out of control and chaotic. And maybe there are times when you've asked, what's this all about? How do I get off you know, the, the, the little mouse wheel? I feel so for, sorry for those little mice in those mouse cages. All they've got to look forward to is getting up in the morning, getting into the wheel and going, get hungry, stop, have a rest, get back into the wheel. Not much purpose there, is there? Well, Job was uncertain that he had a purpose. And you can't have purpose if all there is is chaos. And that's all there is if God himself is chaotic. But we know that we can have a purpose, that our life is not defined by the chaos around us or even inside us, but by the God who loves us and has proven it by sending Jesus. We had to end up there, didn't we? Jesus is not mentioned in... Um, Job 3, but it's crying out for an answer to the question of um, what is the meaning? Is God chaotic? No, he's, he's the God of order who sent Jesus, who is the, the solution to our problem. In the end, we can look back to Jesus, unlike Job could, and put our trust in the God-man who came into a chaotic, sinful pain-ridden world who came to, to pay the price of our rebellion so we can be friends with God. There is nothing more chaos-crushing than that news. And that chaos-crushing news is the good news that you can share with your friends and every now and again when you're having a little self-talk with yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to see ourselves and the people around us afresh through your eyes. Please grant us true repentance in the areas that we need to turn from and help us be patient with those who are struggling with chaotic lives. Help us to show them Jesus in our words and in our actions. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.